Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Mvemba Pezo Dizolele. I'm a senior fellow and the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This is a podcast where we talk everything Africa, politics, economics, security, and culture. Welcome. What happens in the Sahel does not always stay in the Sahel. And today's conflict can trace some of its origins to Libya, where the war that toppled the late Colonel Muammar Gaddafi has had devastating effects for the Sahel. Conflict, population displacement, and violence know no borders. They respect no checkpoint and spill easily into neighboring countries and beyond. Nearly a decade of violence in Mali, Niger, and Burkina Faso has left an indent in the political, social, and economic climate of the region. As conflict continues, however, fear of violence spill over in neighboring states of Ivory Coast, Benin, Togo, and Ghana grows as armed groups affiliated with ISIS, ISIL, Al-Qaeda, and others push for an expansion into coastal states. Over the past year, coup d'etat in Mali, Burkina Faso, and Guinea have left the region's government officials and foreign stakeholders on high alert against the growing possibility of jihadist insurgencies in littoral states. Joining me today on Into Africa to help discuss the situation in this littoral state is Karana Olivier, the Chief of Party for Access International in Abidjan, in Côte d'Ivoire. Karana is a mediator and conflict analysis expert with over 15 years' experience in the management of USAID and the European Union-funded stabilization project in conflict zones. Karana has worked in Central and West Africa, where he has conducted border security studies in the Mano River region and in the rural border towns of northern Burkina Faso, central Mali, and southwestern Niger, an area known as the Liptako-Gurma region. He has also implemented programs designed to prevent and reduce violent extremism in Senegal, Sudan, Chad, Nigeria, and northern Côte d'Ivoire. Karana recently implemented a USAID-founded project called the Accountability for Development that sought to reduce push factors along the Ghana, Guinea, Burkina Faso, and Mali border where local socioeconomic and health factors expose rural communities to recruitment in the activities of violent extremist groups. Good afternoon, Karana, and welcome to Into Africa. Good afternoon, Vemba. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. We've talked extensively on the conflict in the Sahel. It makes front news in the newspapers, on radio programs, and so on. What has been not talked about is the littoral states. Can you please tell us what the littoral states are and why what is happening in Sahel matters in these states? Yeah, the, the discussion around littoral states is a relatively new phenomenon in U.S. foreign policy. It's also, I think, shared by European foreign policy. We've seen that there's an increasing interest in seeing 
what or how the Sahelian unrest is starting to affect countries along the border of the Atlantic Ocean. So in countries such as Nigeria, but closer to the coast, Benin, Togo, Cote d'Ivoire, Ghana even, and maybe even increasingly countries like Guinea and Liberia are all seen as being more vulnerable now to the spread of unrest or violent extremism. When we talk about littoral states, we're talking about those countries which are seen as being potential new sites where violent extremist groups like the ones you described are seeking to get a foothold, most likely to have an increased access to trade and to fill their coffers for the kind of causes that they support. Thank you very much. You have been all over the region. So I think for our listeners, it may be helpful for you just to tell us where things stand in the Sahel briefly. And then whatever situation that we're facing in the Sahel may be affecting the states that you just mentioned, the littoral state of Ghana, Guinea, Cote d'Ivoire, Nigeria, and perhaps even Senegal. Yeah, it's it, the Sahel and the Sahel is a large region, but we focus on mostly the West African region. I think we're talking about Mali, we're talking about Niger, Burkina Faso, and as you said, parts of Mauritania and Senegal where we've seen undemocratic countries, by and large, who have not properly governed and managed the northern regions of their country and have slowly lost control of those areas long before there were violent extremisms settled in. But once violent extremism began to emerge, it rolled on the backs of a social unrest, political unrest. We saw Burkina Faso topple its government under Blaise Compare. We saw uh, the Mali government go over several turnovers, and most recently a coup d'etat just last year, as well as Burkina Faso. We saw a, a coup d'etat in Guinea, which has made itself very, very vulnerable to this kind of incursion. But I think one of the things we need to keep in mind is that a lot of these violent extremist movements have come on the backs of social unrest and social discontent. And so what we're seeing now in Sahel is that a growing alignment, if you will, between sentiment that Perhaps these groups that are living far from government, far from capitals, that somehow these armed groups will be deliverers of sorts from their current state of poverty, lack of access to public services, and that these groups are promising a better future for them. And so the Sahel, mainly that I would say, mainly like the regions we described earlier, northern Burkina Faso, and now also eastern Burkina Faso, but also northern and central Mali. And all across southern Niger and northern Nigeria, we're seeing groups that are, have been able to get a foothold in rural communities precisely because they provide, not just promise, but provide sometimes services that governments aren't able or have been unwilling to provide because either for political reasons or just poor management reasons. How does this then affect the other countries? So what you've just described, Karana, is what's happening in that big swath of land we call the Sahel. How then... And why should Ghana or Nigeria or Benin or Togo worry about what's happening there? I think they should be worried about it because some of the same dynamics are present in the littoral countries. We've seen a slew of unrest. There are countries such as Cote d'Ivoire, which has never seen a peaceful transfer of power. Ghana, which has gone through many, many ups and downs economically, and whose northern part of the country is completely abandoned. Togo has experienced something similar, although the Kabye people from the northern part of Togo have been in power for some time under the Edema government, who himself is ethnic Kabye. We have seen that the north is also suffering from a lack of governance. There's, there's almost no public services available in many parts of the north along the border. Benin and Guinea share, share some of the same problems, and Liberia is still trying to recover from a civil war over 15 years ago. What I think is most frightening is that we've seen attacks in northern Cote d'Ivoire, 
from 2020, June 2020, we saw a large attack that crippled military in the north along the border, killing uh, scores of soldiers. And then we saw a repeat attacks in Burkina, in Cote d'Ivoire over the last two years. What we have not seen is reports of the presence and attacks of groups in Ghana and parts of Guinea. These attacks are occurring, but are not making the news. We do know, however, that Togo, in the month of May 2022, experienced an attack against military forces where its military lost, I think, eight personnel. And of course, there have been repeated attacks in the parks along the northern border with Benin. So what we're seeing is groups that are operating in the Sahel are either finding a foothold in communities willing to work with them in the littoral countries, or we're finding an increased presence of existing outlaws, existing banditry that, that was already present and operating in northern parts of these littoral countries, now cooperating and operating in conjunction with some of these Sahelian-based larger extremist groups, such as Al-Qaeda, such as the Islamic State. It's a complex situation, but, what, but the biggest, scariest part of this is that the situation in terms of governance, the situation in terms of discontent, and abandonment is mirrors the situation we, we saw in the Sahel. And yet, despite that fact, what we're seeing, what I've seen from my experience working in Cote d'Ivoire, for example, is that we're seeing prefects from Mali and Burkina Faso come down to Cote d'Ivoire and provide guidance on how they have been working to battle extremism in their country and giving that advice to Ivoirian officials who are starting to copy them. And despite the failures in their country, somehow that's deemed to be a path that they too are seeking to follow. It's quite worrying. I must say that right now we're not experiencing this. If you live in the capitals in any of these countries, you're not, you're not really concerned because it's very far from where these incidents are happening. And so they're not being recorded as a threat to the general public. And it's not being felt as an urgency, if you will, by the, the governments either, because the people themselves aren't crying out for some sort of reaction. But it is a concern. There's a lot of material there for us to unpack. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> a lot there to unpack, Karana. So let's try to dissect the situation there. There have been violence and there have been attacks in some of these countries. You talked about Cote d'Ivoire, northern Cote d'Ivoire. You also talked about attacks in Togo and then in Guinea. We know that these attacks have not particularly made the front lines of newspapers or the news anywhere, not here. I don't know if they've made news over there in the local, local newspapers. Question I have for you is one, who have claimed responsibility for those acts of violence? And how have the governments or the armies in those countries handled those? So it's, it's not unusual. I mean, we saw in the first attacks, when I began conducting assessments in Mali and Central Mali, Central Mali was at that time not overrun with, with violent extremist groups. And even at that time, when there were attacks, there was no one ever claimed responsibility. That's a very common approach. If you want to create terror, some of that terror comes from the lack of understanding or knowledge of what's happening to you in an area. And so none of the attacks that have occurred to date have had people claim as individuals or groups claiming responsibility. There have been pundits, political pundits and others, suggesting that some of these were the results of the work of the Masina group, which operates out of Northwest and now also out of Southern Burkina Faso. But officially, no groups ever claim responsibility. However, a lot of these attacks have occurred in areas where there is a movement of illegal goods, either the traffic of individuals or the traffic of precious, precious resources. And these lines of transit were used during the Civil War, for example, in Cote d'Ivoire. 
They have been actively used in the smuggling of gold and cattle from Guinea into Mali. So some of these areas are well-known, very profitable routes that some of these groups are seeking to get control of. And so the response from government has been to try to shut down these operations, to try to shut down these, these chains of operations to make sure that uh, it doesn't benefit groups that are across the border. The groups that cross the border, have they claim allegiance to any of the bigger three or four that we know, i.e. Yeah. ISIL, ISIS, or Al-Qaeda, IQIM, any of those? I mean, like I said, none of them have, are officially associated with them. So, but Masin would be, of course, associated with Al-Qaeda of West Africa. But I think it's important to underscore the fact that these groups, in, in some part, are in league with or are seeking to retake control of existing gangs that work in the gold mines or work in elite movement of cattle or movement of lumber, all very lucrative areas that create lots of flows of funds. And so these groups are by and large criminal organizations. So, and some of them are associated with former or sometimes current uh, military regimes. And so getting control of the individuals who are operating these, these networks has been the priority of all national governments because they don't want to see some sort of sub-state be created where it allows groups to leach these countries or their resources. A lot of going on that involves much more than just a group that based on ideology is seeking control of an area. I think you might see what's happening in the littoral states right now is much more in the area of groups coming in, finding existing operations and either taxing that operation we're providing security for those operations or taking them over. So those are the three big scenarios we're seeing right now in, in the northern littoral states. In that case, then, ideology doesn't seem to be the driver of this. It seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong here, the opportunities, a word that we use often is the weakness of the state, maybe the state not having a full grip on the border and controlling. So the opportunity group that are seizing the moment and then using violence to enforce that in the way that gangs or mafias groups will do? Or is there actually political gains in this? Look at the Islamic State when it was in parts of, of Iraq. You can't grow a state like that without having resources. And so ideology is going to always be a part of this, but there's also a need to have resources. And those resources were coming from everywhere. They were coming from Eastern Africa. They were coming from parts of Southern Europe. They were coming right and left. So the Islamic State, even though it was an ideologically based entity, they also drew from human trafficking, drug trafficking. They drew from all kinds of income sources. And so you're seeing the same things in this region. You're seeing groups that are expanding, that have gotten a foothold in many of these countries in the Sahel, but still need now resources in order to keep, continue to build. I think the only areas where we're seeing something that goes beyond the economics is that they are also seeking a foothold or allegiances from groups that are visibly and also vocally outspoken against the government for their mistreatment. And I'm speaking now about the Fulani, the Fulani who are throughout the Sahel, but also in the northern parts of Ghana, Benin, Togo, Cote d'Ivoire, Ghana, and also in Guinea. These groups are very marginalized. Often people will say they're not from our country. So even though you're a fourth generation Fulani in Kina Faso, people will still refer to you as a foreigner. And as a result, they're not involved in development of the communities. They're not included in, in the electorate. They're not included in any kind of decision making at the local level. And as a result, they feel themselves as outsiders. Now, some of these groups, some Fulani have been associated with armed, armed bandits. Others have been simply been painted as being extremists, even though sometimes some of them have never been associated with violence in their lives. It's just what we're seeing here is, is a broad strokes being used to describe a group. And as a result, the extremists on the other side of the border are taking advantage of this. 
We've had several instances where extremist groups have come across the border from Mali into northern Cote d'Ivoire or into northern Guinea and said, look, we're going to be coming to this area. We want to know that we have your support. And the Fulani in the area will say, we didn't want to give them our support. But at the same time, what they're offering us is a chance to improve our lives while people in our own community uh, is not allow- are not allowing us to do this. So they find themselves between a rock and a hard place. Some of the Fulani feel like they, they've been approached by groups they want nothing to do with, but at the same time, they won't turn their eyes away and they won't turn their backs to potential benefits that some of these groups may offer if they do can indeed take over an area. So it's quite difficult for these groups, but it's not limited to the Fulani. There's also other groups, including the Mosi and other ethnic groups who are traditionally in this area who come down as migrant workers and also are traditionally also very marginalized against, mistreated by the local populations. And so as a result, have increasingly um, been associated with groups that have been involved in attacks. What kind of benefits do those groups extract from these insurgents? Interesting you ask that. Yeah. So, I mean, for example, the most traditional one would be some reprieve from all the heavy taxation that some of the Fulani or sometimes Lobi and Mosi groups would, would suffer from as a result of their cattle moving into farmlands. Sometimes the farm may be trampled by troops and the Fulani herders will be asked to pay once, twice, three times, four times for the same incursion. So sometimes the populations are just realizing that the Fulani are at a disadvantage politically and socially, and so they take advantage of them. They also know that they tend to have disposable income because selling a cow brings a lot of money all at once. And so they're, they're preyed upon. And having this kind of protection, if you will, provides them some sort of security from those kinds of abuses. Then their association with these groups certainly is bound to further alienate them from the rest of the population in those countries? How does that work? I mean, in some cases it will. And in some cases they have verbally expressed their desire not to be associated with them and have asked government to come in and pointed out who the groups were and, and said, you know, please protect us from both sides. <laughs> protect us from our communities who accuse us of being terrorists and also protect us from the terrorists who have come and, and easily infiltrate the country and insist that we be with them. So it's Like I said, they're between a rock and a hard place. They try to make the right decisions. In a few cases now, we've seen Fulani groups in Cote d'Ivoire actually send a letter to the president requesting and, and actually recommending certain action to ensure that Fulani are not thrown into the mix with all the others. That was a letter sent out last year in November when we were seeing Fulani rounded up and arrested and held for over a month without charge. This was in Cote d'Ivoire? In the Bunkani region, the northeastern region. Because the northeastern region of Cote d'Ivoire has seen the largest uh, amount of, of, I think, attacks uh, over the last two years. Some of those attacks, I should underscore, are not coming from Burkina Faso or from Mali. They're coming from Ghana. Ghana itself is hosting an organization called Ansar International, not Ansar Din. I must, I must point out it's not okay. that group. It's Ansar International. It's recognized by the German government as a terrorist organization, but it is registered and operates in northern, northwestern Ghana. By the German government? German government because it's based there. It was based, the Ansar International is a Syrian-based NGO based in, uh, based in Germany. There are many NGOs that are European-based and have operations in Africa. So they came here as an NGO, but since they've been labeled as a, a terrorist organization, I know that the Ivarian government has made steps to make sure they don't operate anymore. And the Ghanaian government, they have not yet banned them, but I think there's also steps to do that there as well. But we have, what we've seen is that they've made a lot of incursions into northeastern Cote d'Ivoire. And then soon thereafter, we saw a, an increase in attacks. I'm not saying that they were the ones behind the attacks because there's no proof of that. But I think there's, it's an evidence that this is an area where groups can operate with almost little transparency 
and uh, without any real control. When you say they came in as NGO, what model is that? Like the Hezbollah model, where these are people who actually provide service, social services as well, when they have a political wing to the side? Is that the same? Exactly. Model? The Ansar provides water, and water is very scarce in the north. And so they provide wells, and we managed to track down, I think, with 40 wells that have been dug by Ansar International. And so they provide a service, and that service comes also with a message. A couple of cases, there have been Islam, Islam imams who have asked for new imams who have come to preach in their area, sometimes are brought in from Ghana to leave because they had it. the kind of rhetoric was too extremist or too exclusionist. Okay. There are definitely influences coming from other places other than Burkina Faso and Mali. I just want to just make sure we understand that. You said earlier a couple of things that I think is worth fleshing out here. One, you said mayors or préfets county commissioners, the equivalent in, in English will be, are coming across the border for places like Mali or maybe Burkina Faso and giving advice to their counterparts in Cote d'Ivoire or in Togo. How is that working? Is that expertise one adequate, considering what's happening in the Sahel? And how is that received? Yeah, it's first of all, it's very well received. These are areas that are border areas, by and large, are almost always ignored in any country in the world. And no matter how developed the country is, a border area tends to be the least incorporated into how the rest of that country operates. So these are border border individuals from all the countries around, all coming together saying, look, we're experiencing this. This is what we recommend. I can tell you that in Cote d'Ivoire, we did not have a watch list, for example, until after the first meeting between the prefets and, the, or, or as you said, the county commissioners of the, two, of the relative countries. They came down and said, look, we've had problems with unknown people traveling through the area, we recommend you put together um, Fulani on a watch list. And then we saw the mass arrests that were, if you will, preventative arrests of, of large groups of men and boys, boys as young as 10 years old, were being held for wow. weeks, if not for a month. These were generally human rights violations that were being committed at the urging or at the recommendations of other groups of, of these authorities in the Sahel, because they felt that these were drastic times and that required drastic measures. Are they receiving just local expertise? Are they receiving any help from donors or other expertise? There are. I mean, I'm referring to the kind of exchange of information along border entities. But of course, the national governments do travel to other countries to get advice about what they could do about bolstering the security in their area. The United States is a supporter of a newly formed Academy for the Fight Against Terror. And it was put together in 2018, but only really now got its brick and mortar building. And they conduct operations for the training of groups, not just from Cote d'Ivoire, but also from the entire West African region. Is that academy based in Cote d'Ivoire? It is. It's based in, it's based in just outside of Abidjan in, a, in an area called Jackville. It's a regional uh, training center. It is. It's, it's intended to be a regional academy. It was funded by the French government. And it is a, an academy that serves many different advisors from the United States, from the European Union, from the French government but also from other AU. So it's, it's, if you will, it's an international center that serves uh, the interests of rest, West Africa primarily, but with advice coming from many parts of the world, including from, I think recently we had a, a group from Israel come in to provide security advice. And then you also talked earlier about the distance, you know, border towns not always having the greatest visibility from the capital. I remember a few years ago when Boko Haram started agitating up north, and I asked a friend of mine who was living in Abuja and Lagos what that meant for. She said, 
nobody really talks about it. I was like, but it's a serious threat. She was like, I understand it's a serious threat, but nobody talks about it. And at the time, literally nobody talked about it until it came to Abuja or to Lagos. Nobody talked about it. What is the risk with this kind of approach that you see? I think the obvious risk is that the North will become ungovernable. Already today, many people are afraid of traveling north. Average Ivarians, average citizens of Benin. I went to school in Togo, so I've kept a lot of old colleagues there as friends. And they, they tell me that so just from the one attack, the country's only had one official attack, and that's already has thwarted people's interest in traveling north out of fear of more attacks to come. The north has never been very much an area where the majority of people from the capital would travel to anyway, but it has been where a lot of the migrant populations would travel to and from the country, to and from the, the capital. And I, I want to underscore one thing that's very important to underscore right now is that COVID played a large role in creating the increase of stability throughout the, these littoral countries. By closing the borders, and I must point out the fact that Cote d'Ivoire is one of the last countries to, to continue to have its borders closed, uh, its land borders, that by closing the land borders throughout this region, it opened up and normalized illegal traffic across borders. Mm-hmm. That means that individuals who were in the custom of border trade to survive, those who were living on the border, relied upon getting cheap goods from Mali, cheap goods from Burkina Faso, and then shipping them down to Abidjan for profit. And same thing for Ghana. Both of those situations involved having now to turn to smugglers. And these smugglers suddenly came into the possession of motorcycles thanks to the help of some of these um, organized crime groups that I mentioned. From your expertise, how do you see the outlook for the region within the context you just described on all those littoral states and the action they're taking or not taking? What is the outlook over the next two years? Because we can only really talk about the short term. Yeah. And then if you had a magic wand that you could wave, there is always the, percep- the, the gap between the perception, the reality in every situation. What will you do with that magic wand to to improve this situation? I can say with confidence that over the next two years, we're going to see an increase in the reach of some of these organized gangs that are most likely cooperating with or very likely also paying taxes to some of these extremist groups in the north. They will start to go further south because they've been managing almost unfettered to date. There have been a, there have been counterattacks, so there's been fighting over the presence of armed groups, but the actual trade operations are not affected whatsoever. They seem to be going on without any any kind of restraint. So I think over the next two years, we're going to see this kind of operation solidify and be able to move further and further south. We're already knowing in Cote d'Ivoire alone, we know that some of these operations are already as south as Corrigo in Ghana, in Guinea, and in Togo, less so in Benin. Less, in Benin, they've had a different approach, I think. So it's, it hasn't affected them as much. But we're seeing that some of these operations will find their way as south as the capital, at least for provisions in two years' time. I think in two years' time, it would be very safe to say that the trade routes for these groups will already be in capitals and littoral states. In terms of violence, violence only occurs when something interrupts that trade. If these trade routes continue and they manage to get their teeth into the bricks that they're developing now and the government doesn't do anything much to stop them, we won't see the kind of violence we saw in the Sahelian states where people are fighting over ideology or fighting over land. We'll see these operations continue and maybe we'll see periodic crackdowns against organized crime groups, things like that. If I had a magic wand. Yes. What do you do with that magic wand? Yeah. If I had a magic wand to try to fix this, I would tell the governments to just 
pour your resources into the North. Right now, what we're seeing is that the North gets less of everything. The North, 65% poverty in Cote d'Ivoire. The North has, uh, I think it was 45% poverty in Ghana. So the, the Northern areas of this country see themselves as secondary citizens. A much reduced sense of loyalty towards government. I can give you one example of where some of these extremist groups that were traveling through the country countryside and they, they stumbled across a group of evangelists who were working in the in the region. They stopped them and said, you know, don't worry about it. we're not here for you. We're here, we're here for the government and for the soldiers. And the evangelists, evangelists were, were relieved because, oh yeah, yeah, it's, you're fine. You know, that, because they they saw no allegiance between themselves and government. So this is the same thing we saw happen in Central Mali, where they targeted government entities, they targeted government that was not paying much mind to the fate of people living so far from the capital, and the populations let them. And then once there were no government, then they started preying on the, on the population. And so I think it's the same scenario. We can just pour in more attention, more support, education, roads, water, for heaven's sakes. Water is such an easy thing to do, but water is so lacking and, and so underdeveloped in these areas. I think it would turn the tide against groups that are operating now with almost no restrictions. The local population would not see them as friends, but would see them as hindrances to development in the area. And I think that would that would change the game considerably. So it's governance, governance, governance. That's the main takeaway. But also we know that this conflict, if it's not handled properly, it's going to go south. So that's, a, that's a very scary option. Karana Olivier, thank you very much for your insight and for joining us today on Into Africa. We appreciate you. Thank you, Reba. Take care. Thank you for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends. Subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts. You can also read our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. So long. 